The motto for 2022 is out with the old, in with the bold. And if you're ready to revamp your career, your relationships, or your money this year, check out Modern Life. It's a new podcast and newsletter from Fidelity Investments with fresh perspectives from people defining success on their own terms and tips to help you do the same. Search Modern Life wherever you find your podcast to follow and subscribe. Keep in mind that investing involves risk. The value of your investment will fluctuate over time and you may gain or lose money. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC, 900 Salem Street, Smithfield, Rhode Island, 02917. Warning. All Things Crime is a true crime production that may contain violent or disturbing material. Viewer or listener discretion is advised. SNL. So, I mean, DNA actually was started in criminal investigation mid-80s, but the technologies were clunky. Mm -hmm. So, you know, initially when you're using RFLP in the mid-1980s, uh, first of all, the testing would take six weeks. You would need a lot of DNA. You'd need a blood stain the size of a dime. So even, you know, 80s, 90s, yeah, we had DNA, but it wasn't able to resolve as many cases as it is now, just because right. of the limitations of the technology. And so there's very often, you know, I'm looking at a, a post-conviction case and testing that was done five years ago. I'm like, ah, that was inconclusive. If we did that today, we could probably get an answer, you know, just, just with right. the, the current evolution of the technology in a few years. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, it's it's almost like a, a, a hockey stick. You know, it's it's going up so fast that right. e even something that was done, like you said, five years ago, uh, if it wasn't done with the latest technology, then perhaps it needs to be run again. So, all right, so now we, we get the evidence to the laboratory and, you know, the analysts will look at it. The first question is, well, can I identify a body fluid? Is there blood? Is there semen? Is there saliva? And mm -hmm. if not, how, how and where am I going to sample this? And that's going to take some, some common sense. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a great example is, let's say that there's a, a ligature that's found, like a piece of rope. Um, if you were just to run a swab around the whole length of the rope, you're going to get a pretty bad mixture. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the mechanics of it, the person doing the strangling is probably touching the rope on the ends of it to get leverage. So that's where you'd expect to find predominantly the, the offender's DNA. Uh, in the middle would be where it would be in contact with the victim. Right. So, you know, a classical way to break down the sampling is break it into three or four quadrants because you know you're going to get different relative proportions of the mixture. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe the tool that you use, you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of crime labs don't have the MVAC, so they're not necessarily getting all of the DNA that they could. As a matter of fact, I had a post-conviction case where it involved a rope and uh, they swabbed it, not, not even in the right place, I would say. And then we actually used an MVAC and, and got a little bit more information. Hmm. So, okay, so now- um, That actually happens a lot more than uh, what people would think. Right, right. And j just to give another anecdote here, I another post-conviction case I had where we used the MVAC the evidence had been swabbed twice previously. Mm -hmm. And with the MVEC, we actually still got DNA results. In that particular case, it, it wasn't probative, but I just thought that was pretty cool that even though we got severely leftover evidence that by the way, was 35 years old, uh -huh. there was still a result. Wow. That's so, okay, awesome. now the um, DNA report is written. It goes to the prosecutor. Um, the prosecutor has to understand what exactly that means. 
because now, you know, the, these reports might as well be in a foreign language, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, assuming a mixture of four, there's an 80% contributor, a 20% contributor, likelihood ratio in this scenario is this, you know, all this stuff that it's not straightforward. This is not clinical testing. Right. Like, yeah, we found um, alcohol in the blood or we didn't find alcohol. Mm -hmm. So there, there really needs to be before the case is tried or even charged, there needs to be a discussion between the crime lab and the prosecutor so that they understand fully what this means. Now that doesn't happen all the time for sure. Right, right. Um, there's not the time for that. Um, so now, well, if, I know, could, now if I could just interject right here, <laughs> it's, you know, what you're describing uh, could take months. You know, it, it's like from the time the crime actually happened and the investigation starts, they, they gather the evidence, they move it to the crime lab uh, again, because of some of the backlog that exists, right, but, right. but also just the, the length of time. If you do it right, an investigation can take a long time. Absolutely. So, you know, in today's environment, it's all a now, 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 now type of an environment. And, you know, I'm sorry, investigations don't just work that way. This isn't Gattaca where you can take a little machine, <laughs> right. and sweep, sweep it over the guy's keyboard and, you know, and you instantly know who did it. You know, well, that's, that's a good point because maybe in the laboratory, actually the extraction, quantitation, amplification, typing, maybe that's done in two days, but it's, prioritizing the case. You know, there's a backlog. They may not get to it for three months. Uh, right. Maybe the front end, the evidence exam, they, that takes a while on mm -hmm. and on. So to actually get a finished report, like you say, is going to take months and months. Sometimes it's a magic bullet. You know, maybe it's a rape case. Boom, the guys, it, it wasn't his semen. That's the end of it. Right. Um, right. But nowadays we're getting a lot more complicated types of, of answers. So now you move into, you know, perhaps the preliminary hearing. Uh, mm -hmm. Now the defense gets involved and there has to be production of discovery. Mm -hmm. And a lot of defense attorneys, they don't know what discovery is. They get the report like, Hey, I got the discovery, you know, it says it's my guy and it doesn't look good. And so you have, they have to be educated. Hopefully they have an expert who can at least guide them as to what else needs to be obtained from the crime laboratory. So they can right. fully vet that and decide, you know, listen, because maybe the case will resolve based on the DNA. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully with the input of an expert say, yeah, you know, this is solid. I, I don't know what you can do about it. Um, but if it isn't, then, you know, you go to trial and then mm -hmm. um, prosecution expert testifies and hopefully there's a thorough cross-examination to bring out any weaknesses mm -hmm. so that, um, you know, the juror gets a full picture of the uh, evidence and what it means. So, you know, now, God forbid, there's a, a, a conviction and, and the person is truly innocent. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't get fixed overnight at all. Uh, there's a whole process of appeals that have to be exhausted. Right. Um, and you wonder how many people, you know, a lot of people are in the justice system for the first time when they're convicted of a serious crime. Mm -hmm. So they don't know how this all works. And you would tend to just trust that your attorneys know what they're doing and you might mm -hmm. take their advice. And I've seen a lot of scary instances where, you know, attorneys are getting paid 50, 60, $70,000 for a murder case. And they're just, you know, just maybe stipulating to the DNA and not really investigating. And mm. so it could be that a wrongfully convicted person could even just give up hope, you know, Ho hopefully that's not the case. Um, right. And then hopefully they can dial into a good attorney or an innocence project. And, but even there, that's going to take months and months, if not years to get to the point where you can get a DNA test that may actually set them free. So all of that to say is it is so critically important to get this done right on the front end. Right. So that we can prevent this type of miscarriage of justice, which 
is a miscarriage of justice and it's a lot of money and time wasted for all sides. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you explaining that because there's so many people that watch CSI and other crime shows right. where they literally have to put the entire crime, the investigation and the resolution in 43 minutes worth of airtime. And it, it just doesn't work that way. Right. You know, right. Investigation takes a long time. Right. Lab work, uh, relatively short, but for the backlogs, but then the litigation takes forever. I yeah. mean, there's just yeah. pre-trial hearing after pre-trial hearing before you get anywhere to where you could possibly, you know, have the case resolved or, or tried. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, even for a flawed system uh, and, and, or, or for a system that, that is as good as ours is, there are still flaws in it. And I, yeah. I think the number one flaw with our system right now is just how long it takes. But sure. if you start hacking off time, you have to shorten certain things and then justice is not gonna get served. Either the victim is gonna get shortchanged because the person that actually committed the crime isn't gonna be convicted, or if you shortchange the investigation, or the, the lab processes or anything else, then perhaps somebody that didn't do it is gonna get convicted on the other end just based on circumstantial evidence or something like that. And that's, so it's, I, I, I think one of the, the biggest problems, again, with the now, now society is the, the lack of adult timeframes that many of us uh, uh, lose just because we have the, the, the world at our, finger at our fingertips, you know, we text somebody and we're right. like mad if they don't respond in 30 seconds. And yet, you know, you, you equate that over to an investigation and something as serious as uh, convicting somebody for a crime. And again, I'm, right. I'm going to be uh, interviewing a, a guy next week that uh, served 20 years for a murder he didn't commit. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I, I can't wait. It's going to be a fascinating interview. But it's, um, it's amazing that that is the exception to the, to the rule, but at the same time it happens. And, you know, how you completely eliminate that from happening and still maintain the integrity of the system. You know, I, I really am not sure if that's possible, but. Well, and uh, you know, what, what's scary just, just going with the wrongful conviction is obviously mm -hmm. we've had DNA resolve a, a lot of those cases recently, you know, almost mm -hmm. 400, I think by the innocence project. Right. But what percentage of cases where someone's wrongfully convicted actually have DNA evidence. I'm sure an extremely small percentage. Mm -hmm. So that's great that we can catch it with DNA, but most of the cases, there's not that kind of cross check. Well, you'd hope that, you know, since DNA just came on the scene, what, mid nineties, that from that point forward, there would be a less percentage of it, you know, a less chance that of a wrongful conviction. You know, there's, you know, there's well, always going to be flaws, but Right. You know, you, yes and no. So, I mean, DNA actually was started in criminal investigation mid 80s, but the technologies were clunky. Mm -hmm. So, you know, initially when you're using RFLP in the mid 1980s, uh, first of all, the testing would take six weeks. You would need a lot of DNA. You'd need a blood stain the size of a dime. So even, you know, 80s, 90s, yeah, we had DNA, but it wasn't able to resolve as many cases as it is now just because right. of the limitations of the technology. And so there's very often, you know, I'm looking at a, a post-conviction case and testing that was done five years ago. I'm like, ah, that was inconclusive. If we did that today, we could probably get an answer, you know, just, just with right. the, the current evolution of the technology in a few years. 
Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's almost like a, a, a hockey stick, you know, it's, it's going up so fast that right. even something that was done, like you said, five years ago. I'm Mike Morford, and I've been researching the Zodiac case for years. Zodiac, just the name. It sounds sinister. It inspires fear. The fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing. He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. And the attacks, they were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished, but he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Uh, if it wasn't done with the latest technology, then perhaps it needs to be run again. And This is uh, true, yeah. Yeah, that that's creating even more backlog. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, you're right. If we have to work all these cases twice, I mean, we're, right. we're never going to get ahead. Well, which is one resistance to the MVAC, to be honest. Yeah. Um, people are like, yeah, you know, this is a great tool. And clearly there's there's a, a, a significant number of cases that deserve to actually be processed with the MVAC. But, you know, there's also other factors that come in line with it. And yeah, so well, there's, yeah, there's I mean, a little the, bit of resistance there, but whether no, it should... I, I, I understand it. You know, the labs say, listen, we, we, got, we got enough cases as it is. We can't start... Mm-hmm. We're not looking for more cases, you know, we should, but we can't. And then of course the data you get, you know, with MVAC, you might get very complicated mixtures and tough samples and all that. Well, some of that sure. I think is put to bed now that we're in the era of probabilistic genotyping. So I think mm-hmm. that excuse for getting more complicated data is going away. But right. um, I don't know. Sometimes I, I think of the, the cartoon Jared where, you know, there's like the cavemen and they got the wheelbarrow with the square wheel. <laughs> and then another caveman comes up with the, with the circle, you know, and taps on the shoulder. They said, no, we don't have time for that. So there, there may right. be some of that with technology like the MVAC, because unfortunately it's a, it's, it's very tough for a crime lab to validate a new system. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got to pull people off of casework that they're already backlogged on. So even to get some of these advancements, be it the MVAC or something else to get them online in a crime lab, it's not an easy thing and it takes much more time uh, than it should. And like I say, um, they don't, they're not really caught up with the current science because you know what, pe- people have to work cases and right. that's right. just the reality of it. Well, and, and it's, uh, that's the nature of the beast. There's some labs that, uh, that we've worked with that uh, literally have a new person that they bring on that is specifically for validating yes. new equipment, not just the MVAC, but right, other pieces right. of equipment. And that's, that's their job. You know, they, they're not even in uh, working cases anymore. It is their job to make sure that the lab is constantly updated on the latest and greatest. And it, unfortunately, not all labs can do that. But no, no, that 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 is a huge luxury. And I know it's got to be frustrating for the labs that there is a new technology every, you know, every right. year, every six months right. or whatever. So you're constantly validating. Yeah. Well, especially I'm not sure if you've seen the the latest FBI data where they compared the MVAC with swabbing and and uh, taping. Well, I, I can't miss it, Jared. You know, I follow you on social media, so it's plastered all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's my job. That's right. Yeah. So, no, but in, in that, you know, you were talking about there were cases earlier where they'd been swapped twice. Yeah. 
and you still got results with the MVAC. And that's uh, one of the things that the FBI showed is that uh, even after swabbing, uh, the MVAC pulled as much as 46 times more than what this swab originally did, which is just pretty amazing. So Th that's very cool. And just to give another case example, a post-conviction case, uh, evidence was 20 years old or so. Mm -hmm. And so we MVAC a, a bunch of clothing and we, we didn't get that perpetrator's profile. You know, we didn't get that one nice profile that we could put in CODIS or something like that. But right. the fact that the defendant's DNA didn't show up anywhere you know, there's the old adage, right? Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So defense says, hey, listen, we did this DNA testing. Defendant didn't show up. Great. You know, prosecutor says, ah, absence of evidence, not evidence of absence. But, you know, you think about it because DNA testing is now so sensitive, mm -hmm. right? Not finding DNA has a lot more meaning. Stack on top of that MVAC sampling where you're getting every little crumb of DNA. Now, if you don't find someone's DNA, that has even more meaning. So that starts to right. chip away at that axiom that, oh, it, you know, it's, it's there, but you couldn't detect it or something like that. And interestingly enough, the guy that I'm, that I'm interviewing next week, that's exactly what happened in his case. Mm -hmm. And he supposedly was at the crime scene. And supposedly did, you know, handle certain things such as the victim's uh, sweatpants and a, and a teddy bear. And so they, they thought, well, let's, uh, let's MVAC these items and see if, you know, and then we'll get his DNA and then we'll Case be 100% justified for having him in prison. Right. Well, they MVAC'd him in certain places on, on each one of those items. And they came up with DNA, but not uh, that guy's particular DNA. So then they were like, holy crap, you know, we, we <laughs> right. need to, <laughs> to really, uh, and you know who I'm talking about, Chris Yeah, Trapp yeah, case. Chris, Chris Trapp, I imagine. So then they, like, like you said earlier, you said they MVAC the hell out of it, didn't that? That, <laughs> yeah. that was a, that was a uh, hashtag for a while, wasn't it? <laughs> That's right. When, when the tables were turned and I interviewed you on my podcast, I think we That's came right. up with the MVAC the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and then they came up with nothing. So then they actually... Uh, got thinking about what the process was of, of getting this guy out of prison. If he, if there was absolutely no evidence to, uh, to hold him. So. Yeah. There, I, there's a lot of, comp I, I'm looking forward to that episode. There's a lot of components to that case with the, the genealogy and the DNA from the other person. Right. And, right. Wow. I mean that, that case just, there's so many issues wrapped into one on that one. Right. Well, and, and it's absolutely amazing that they finally caught the guy that right. did it. What, what a, what a crazy case that is especially being in a small town, Idaho, you know, you just don't have the, that kind of, uh, you know, those kind of cases are, are once in a lifetime, let alone, you know, very often. So yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, yeah, I, I that case is going to be going to, and that interview, I can't wait for it because uh, Chris Tapp is one amazing individual and uh, just uh, being able to, to get him on is going to be really, really interesting. Yeah, I remember seeing the video of, of you actually showing him the MVAC. I mean, what a cool moment that must have been for you. Oh, that really was. I, I heard that he was, this is shortly after he was released. I heard that he was going to be up in Boise. So, you know, I threw the MVAC in in the back of my car and drove up there and uh, was able to meet him and, and show him the system. Yeah, that was, a, that was actually a very surreal moment. So, 
Yeah, it, it's really good to be able to touch base with the people whose lives are actually mm -hmm. affected. And I think working in a crime lab, you could lose sight of that, you know, because you're just looking at test tubes and numbers and all that. So that's actually one of the things I really enjoy about what I'm doing now is that, mm -hmm. you know, I'm meeting with inmates and uh, just kind of seeing it firsthand. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that uh, detectives and, and CSIs uh, do what they do is because they enjoy uh, not only the problem solving aspect of it, but also being able to interact with the people, the community, there, there's a whole, there's, there's always two sides to it. Both sides obviously have to be uh, equally and, and justifiably represented. And, you know, that's why one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I know, you know, in the areas that you work in, you, number one, you're uh, the epitome of a professional well, and, thank you. Uh, that you would have a real unique perspective that, uh, that I think everybody is very interested in. Yeah. And I mean, just real quick to give, give my background. I, uh, you know, I worked in law enforcement crime laboratories first. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've been in forensic science for about 24 years now, 21 of that, you know, specializing in DNA. But my first gig in forensic DNA, I worked uh, in here in Southern California, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department crime lab. So I was a criminalist there for about six years. Uh, mm -hmm. At the end of my term there, I was actually the DNA technical leader, person in charge of the technical operations. Right. Uh, then a buddy of mine had this crazy idea that we should actually start our own private forensic DNA lab because uh -huh. obviously the, the, the current labs couldn't keep up. There was always a backlog and right. it was a great business opportunity. So then um, there too- Easier said was, than done, isn't it? Easier said than done, absolutely. <laughs> but- um, you know, so then at that point, again, I was a technical leader, lab director, all of that. But not only did we work with the prosecution, but we started working with the defense, you know, as a private lab. And that's when I first started working directly with inmates. Um, mm -hmm. There are a number of people, believe it or not, inmates who actually work, uh, serve as their own attorney and they defend themselves. So, oh, that, yeah, so that was kind of my... Um, that's why I say I've seen all all sides of this. And so mm -hmm. now uh, for the last 10 years or so, I'm doing purely defense consulting and post-conviction. So we've had a pretty good 360 view of, you know, how everything works. So that must be interesting. You know, if an inmate is working as their own attorney, you know, you were talking about how difficult it is to educate some attorneys on DNA. Right. What's it like uh, educating an, an inmate? Uh, it's actually very rewarding. You know, it's it's kind of funny if you go and sit in front of someone who's got like tattoos all over their face and they uh -huh. look really tough. And that moment you get through to them and they understand the evidence and they understand the meaning and maybe that there's some hope. I mean, that that's very rewarding. But ultimately, I mean, as a forensic scientist, that that's we have to be able to educate the general public because ultimately the juror is the consumption of this. So it is the person on the street who's not involved in science or law enforcement that really we have to convey this information to. And that's just the interesting challenge of our justice system. Right. Oh, it's fascinating. Well, listen, I, I've kept you uh, a little longer than what I, what I originally intended. And I, I certainly appreciate uh, you coming on. And I'll tell you, um, you're a wealth of information. And I will absolutely uh, ask you to come on again if that's all right. Yeah, let's do it, Jared. I uh, very much enjoyed our discussion. Okay. Well, you have a great day and we will talk at you later. You do the same. Take care, Jared. Okay. Thank you for listening to All Things Crime. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this, please give us a positive review so other people can find it as well. Have an amazing All Things Crime day.